Today, we share some baby naming advice, talk about a shocking experiment, figure out how many sweaters is too many, and learn what you need to plan a meal for a big crowd, if you are Jesus, all on the way to answering the question, what makes a Karen? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. There may be no more idyllic and picturesque miracle in all of the New Testament than the feeding of the 5,000. It has wonderful drama to it. And better yet, to make it even more dramatic, the five loaves and the two fish described in the story are not likely very large. They're not like baguettes or a whole salmon, but much smaller loaves and fish. Think easily portable lunch portion rather than some sort of banquet-serving portion. Jesus takes the panicking disciples a mass of hungry people, and five dinner rolls and two sardines, and he feeds 5,000 people. The problem with a story like this is that it is so dramatic, it often keeps us from seeing what is happening behind the scenes. Jesus may be doing something remarkable with the food, but he is simultaneously trying something much more challenging with the disciples. He's trying to change their worldview in a way that relates directly to what's going on in our own world today. Let me begin by going back about 75 years from now to the end of World War II. After World War II was over, the world began to realize fully the scale of atrocities that had happened within Germany and other places under Hitler's and the Third Reich's leadership. A natural question began to emerge. How could this have happened? One popular answer at the time was that there was just something about the Germans. This answer posited that they were inclined towards totalitarian regimes and therefore, as a nation and as people, more likely to follow blindly ideas and leadership that would not have taken root, much much less flourished, in other nations. The result of these questions and theories was some very interesting experiments in the field of psychology. And the most famous of these experiments was the Milgram experiment. A Yale professor named Stanley Milgram developed an experiment in which people were hired to assist with an experiment that was purportedly focused on studying learning. In reality, the people hired to assist were actually the test subjects themselves. In one room sat the leader of the experiment and the assistant, the person who'd been hired. In the other room was an actor, the person the assistant thought was the test subject. The leader of the experiment would ask a question of the actor in the other room. When he missed a question, the assistant was to administer an electric shock. Even though in reality there was no actual electric shock being administered, the assistant didn't know that. They believed they were administering a stronger dose of shock with each 
subsequent question. It was predicted that only a tiny fraction of the assistants would continue with the experiment beyond the point when the actor in the other room asked to stop. Instead, what they discovered was that about 65% continued to administer the shock when told to do so even after the actor in the other room had become apparently unresponsive and the assistant understood that they were administering a potentially life-threatening level of shock. 65%, as I said, still administered the shock. The shocking lesson, pun intended, in this experiment is that we are no different from the Germans or anyone else in our propensity to fall in line and follow orders. I think whenever we discover a new form of disturbing behavior, we rush to prove that there's something different about the people who are displaying the disturbing behavior. We long to be assured that we are not like them. What normally happens, though, is that we discover the new behavior is not all that new and that we are equally susceptible to it. One of my good friends from college is married to a woman named Karen. It's a rough time to have that name. And just as a bit of advice, you probably don't want to name your child Karen if you're currently expecting. It has become synonymous with a self-entitled, selfish, uncaring woman. Which, by the way, my friend's wife is absolutely not any of those things. I've been thinking a lot about all the videos online that I've seen recently of women who have been dubbed Karen because of their horrible behavior. It's left me pondering this question, what is that all about? What's going on for them that causes them to act in such a way? And really more importantly, what does it help me to understand about myself and my own actions? If there's one thing that is clear for me, it is that these people who have been dubbed Karen are motivated by fear. They are afraid. And their fear is being manifested in some really troubling ways. The easy thing is to watch and say, yep, something's wrong with them, but that's just way too easy a way out. Allow me to tell a confessional story for a moment. In my family growing up, we had two hard and fast rules for Christmas Day. First, we take turns opening presents. Everyone watches as each person opens their gift. Second, if you get any form of clothing, you have to try it on and model it for the whole family. No exceptions. I was about 14 years old, and it was Christmas Day. I hadn't asked or hinted for anything. I had no overwhelming needs or desires. And for a 14-year-old, or I should say at least for this 14-year-old, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. So as my family and I sat down on Christmas Day, as was our custom to take turns opening our presents one at a time, the possibilities were wide open. I could be about to receive anything. I went first that year, and I was handed a fairly large, flat box that seemed light for its size. 
the box was opened and I peeled back the tissue paper and I saw my gift. It was a brown v-neck sweater. The gift was practical, but boring. I tried it on as dictated by the family tradition that all clothing must be tried on and modeled immediately. As you might guess, no underwear is ever exchanged as a gift in our household. I was a little disappointed with my gift until it occurred to me, of course, my parents had decided to give me the most boring gift up front. They were saving the best for last. My little sister then opened her gift and squealed at a brand new leather jacket. I looked at my brown sweater and then at her modeling her new leather jacket. And I felt more than a twinge of disappointment. But, but I reminded myself, be patient. Good things come to those who wait. It was time for the second round of gifts, and I was given a box that was very similar in size to the first one. And I thought to myself, this must be the Christmas of new clothes for all of us. When I opened the gift, I discovered the very same sweater again, just in a different shade of brown. Struggling with my disappointment, I tried the sweater on for all to see. My sister opened her next gift and got a new clock radio. It was very cool. It was LED digital display. Now, that doesn't sound like anything today. But back then, it was the absolute newest technology. My turn came back around again, and I was handed a box that contained the very same sweater in yet a third color of brown. When my fourth and final gift came that Christmas, I was handed a box of the same size. Even before I opened it, I just kept thinking to myself, this can't possibly be what it looks to be. But it was. My Christmas that year was four brown sweaters, just in different shades of brown. My sister opened her gift to reveal a piece of jewelry with her birthstone. It was an opal ring. At that point in my life, a sweater didn't feel much like a gift, and I remember being resentful. I'm not proud to admit that I quietly calculated how much my sister's gifts cost compared to the total of my own. I can't even tell you how resentful and annoyed I was when my friends asked, what'd you get for Christmas? Four brown sweaters. And then they kept prodding me to say, no, but what'd you get beyond the sweaters? It was not a time I'm proud of. It's okay to receive gifts that you're not excited about, but the truth is I went way beyond being not excited. I seethed with jealousy. I was furious with the scarcity of generosity that I saw in my own gifts and the abundance of generosity I saw in my sisters. And for a brief period of time, I didn't like, love, or care about anyone else. I was so consumed by my sense of scarcity that I literally had no room in my life for the love of others. As I think about this moment in my life, I've come to the conclusion that the opposite of love is perhaps not hate, but it is a fear of scarcity. 
When we go through life with a sense of scarcity, when we are protecting what we have from others and worried about who might be getting more than us, it becomes really difficult to love. Immediately, there might be some who misunderstand this to be about being poor and rich. Surprisingly, a sense of scarcity has little to do with how much we have, both the rich and people of more modest means, and everyone else can be hobbled by a mentality of scarcity. Now bear with me as I tell you one more confessional story. When I was a newly ordained priest, I received $50 a month from the church where I worked for my discretionary fund. Now, if you don't know what a discretionary fund is, it's just an account that many clergy have that allows them to help people in need. Every month, at the beginning of the month, I would receive by direct deposit, the $50 into my discretionary checking account. I was working at a downtown church, and I was the one designated to work with people in need who came to the door. Always within a week, two at the most, of receiving the money, my discretionary fund was down to no more than a dollar. It was basically empty. I gave all of that money away to people in need every single month. Then, after I'd been there about a year, year and a half, there was a funeral for a parishioner, and the wife of the deceased gave me $1,000 for my discretionary fund. Now, remember, I'd never had more than $50 in that account, ever. Suddenly, I had lots of money in the fund, and about three months later, I had $1,300 in my discretionary fund. I'd kept the $1,000 she'd given me and deposited it. I'd also received a gift for performing a wedding, and I deposited that. And then the money I had received each month from the church, the $50, I protected that over the last couple of months. I discovered that I was suddenly fearful of allowing that fund to dip below $1,000. Matter of fact, I was fearful of spending any of that money. In my case, in abundance had suddenly triggered in me a fearfulness of scarcity that I'd never felt with a much more modest amount in my own discretionary fund. Suddenly, I didn't have compassion for the people in need to whom I was to minister. I saw them as competitors for my precious resources. The truth is that resources do not make you generous nor thankful, and the lack of resources do not make you incapable of being thankful. But it is hard to love Truly love when you're filled with a fear of scarcity. And I think that's what Jesus was doing with the disciples in the story of feeding the 5,000. And the fact that the story contains a miracle of feeding 5,000 people may turn out to be a bit of a red herring. If we focus on the miracle, we miss the fact that Jesus is teaching his disciples to love. He is aware that the moment the disciples begin to see the people to whom they are called to minister, the moment they see those people as competitors for precious resources, whether it's the precious resources of food or Jesus' attention or God's saving love, they have then isolated themselves from the ability to love. So Jesus, in the desire to teach them to love, pushes them 
towards generosity. He pushes them towards risky generosity. They clearly do not have enough. Five loaves and two fish are not going to feed the number of people surrounding them. And they clearly see the world as everyone for themselves. And in their anxiety, they're telling Jesus to send the hungry people away. Jesus says to them, hush and bring me what you have. I think that's what's going on with the Karens on the internet. They look at other people, most often people who differ from them in some way, and they see competitors. They are filled with a sense of fear and scarcity. And if that is the case, then I'm potentially a Karen every day of my life. You and I live in a world filled with a sense of scarcity. And it's not just the people who are being nicknamed Karen who are acting it out and feeling it. Everything around us says that the smart thing to do is to close yourself off. Store up your resources. Make sure you have enough. Let other people worry about themselves. Yet Jesus says something totally different. He says, Don't see the world and your lives as threatened by scarcity. See them as filled with abundance. And interestingly, we can change the way we see each other by practicing generosity. We are pushed by God down the path of generosity to teach us to love. Now, some of us say, fine, I'll be generous with the people who are close to me. Let others be generous with their own. But that's not generosity. It's tribalism. It's simply protecting your own family from the world around you. It still sees the world as a place of scarcity. And when we live like that, the world never changes, and we teach our families to never love. We perpetuate the fear of scarcity. Because as Jesus shows the disciples, to love is to risk. It is to give of yourself and of your resources generously to those you don't know. And then, and only then, do you really begin to love. Giving, of course, is not love. My sweaters were not an indication that my parents loved me less than my sister. There had been times when my Christmas had surpassed those of my sister. You can't measure love through the level of giving, but you sure can spark it. When we see the behavior of a Karen, we are likely to think, well, that can't ever be me. But history shows us otherwise. After the dawning realization that we could wind up acting the same way, any of us could, then we ask, how do I ensure that I never become that person who is so afraid of a changing world and people who differ from me that I'm filled with animosity for others? Wonderfully, the answer is fairly easy. Practice generosity. This isn't a give-away-your-spare-change kind of generosity. It is generosity that makes you feel uncertain. And you will find the more you give, the less you fear. And the less you fear, well, the more 
you are able to love everyone. That's all for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend or share the podcast on Facebook. One person telling another is pretty much the only way anyone finds out about it, and I would genuinely appreciate your help. Also, I'd love to hear from you. I encourage you to get in touch with me through email. My email is skypilot at gmail.com. That's skypilot with three T's, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T at gmail.com. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.